Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to episode 318 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thanks for joining me today for this story from the southeast of England. And as this is my last episode before Christmas, a very happy Christmas to you all. I'll be back next Tuesday, so listening will be a great excuse to dodge those relatives for a bit. Come on, you've had enough of them by then. We both know that. Today's episode, excuse the cliche, really is a story straight out of a crime fiction novel. And once again, centres on one of the themes common on this show, perception versus reality. As always, a huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this exclusive club. That's Sharon James and Steve Dale, and also Anne-Marie Wallace, who has increased her support. Thank you so much. I have some really exciting news as my good friend in North Carolina, E.J. Hammond, has just had a book published and it's a real must read if you're interested in Ted Bundy. You've heard all the stories about the life and crimes of Ted Bundy, but have you heard the real life accounts from his survivors, the attorneys who prosecuted him, the psychiatrist who analysed him or the sheriff who jailed him? If you're interested in the thoughts and feelings of people surrounding the Ted Bundy case and taking a deep dive into the psychology behind his actions, then they've got you covered. Crime authors and Ted Bundy experts E.J. Hammond and Fabian Richard provide you with insights into the sights and sounds of the women who Bundy brutalised, the officials involved in apprehending him, and the people who ensured he never saw another day of freedom in their new book, Ted Bundy, Memories of the Beast. You'll see previously unseen photographs provided by the people who knew Ted, learn previously unknown information about the steps that led Bundy to his downfall in Florida's electric chair, and delve deep into the details that few have accessed in the years since Bundy's execution. If this book sounds like something you or a loved one would enjoy, Go to Amazon and search for Ted Bundy, Memories of the Beast. It would be criminal not to. Okay, so before we continue, let's get on with our guest the month and year game to set some context for today's story. At number one in the UK charts was No Limit by Two Unlimited. Whilst in the US, the top spot was filled by Whitney with I Will Always Love You. You might know that one. In Australia, the best-selling album that year was the soundtrack from the movie The Bodyguard. It was a tough month for news this month. A truck bomb exploded at the World Trade Center in New York, killing six people and injuring over a thousand. Awful bomb attacks by the provisional IRA in Warrington killed two people and injured almost 60. Three-year-old Jonathan Ball died at the scene He'd been in town with his babysitter, shopping for a Mother's Day card. The second victim, Tin Parry, was only 12. 
he was really badly wounded and died the following month. And this was also the month when the world was left in shock by the murder of two-year-old James Bulger. So did you guess the month and year? Yep, it was February 1993. Just a year out again, hey? Every week. Today's story comes from Wadhurst in East Sussex, a small market town around 10 miles south of Tunbridge Wells. Nicola Johnson seemed to have lots to look forward to. Very quiet and shy, her friends and family described her as reserved. Photographs of her show she was certainly very physically attractive, with a wide engaging smile and bright blue eyes. Friends said it could take a while to get to know her, but once you gained her trust, you had a friend for life. But these friends were surprised when Nikki was bowled off her feet by a wealthy man, particularly when he was 18 years older than her. This man, 45-year-old Harry Fuller, was the complete opposite of Nicola. He was confident, charismatic and loud. He could usually be seen driving either a Rolls-Royce or a Range Rover and it was clear he wasn't short of money. He was a sharp dresser and worryingly he had the nickname Flash Harry. But it was also clear that he doted on Nicola and he treated her like a really special person, opening doors for her and buying her fresh flowers every week. They were a couple really in love and the relationship progressed very, very quickly as Harry proposed. Nicola's mum Barbara and her friends advised a little caution. There was no hurry to get married. But Nicola could not be persuaded and within months of meeting, the couple did get married. They rented a picturesque cottage on the high street in Wadhurst called Black Man's Cottage. They seemed blissfully happy with their lives together seemingly mapped out in front of them. When on Wednesday the 10th of February 1993, Nicola failed to turn up for work, a concerned employee phoned Nicola's parents. It was totally out of character. Her parents made their way to the cottage, but now as it was early evening, the darkness of a winter's night was drawing in, and the cottage was still and eerie, with no signs of life. Unable to get a response or get into the property, the Fullers called the police and a patrol car was dispatched to Blackman's Cottage. On arrival, the patrol too were unable to get a response from inside the house, and one of the officers said, There was a dread in the back of all our minds. Since we'd arrived at the cottage, there was something really desperately wrong. I could see her keys and handbag on the table, and we'd already noticed her car was parked out back. The police eventually forced entry. They found Harry first, downstairs in the utility room. He'd been shot once through the back, piercing his heart and killing him almost instantly. He had what appeared to be a white powder sprinkled all over his body of a small sachet, which is where it appeared to come from, laid down beside him, perhaps giving or intended to give the impression that the murder was drug-related. Police, of course, had the substance forensically examined and it turned out just to be sucrose, a sugar compound. They found Nicola upstairs in the main bedroom. She'd been shot four times, three times down the stairs and a further shot as she'd made her way into her bedroom, 
presumably to try to escape. The killer had placed a duvet over her head before carrying out the final fatal shot. Once again on this podcast, we've seen another murder in the bedroom of somebody's own house, the place where we should all feel the most safe. A police officer pressed the redial button on the phone, revealing a 999 call had been made. This was later checked and had occurred at 8.43 in the morning. The call, as all emergency calls, was recorded and had lasted for six minutes. However, it was a silent call, in so much as no one spoke, as Nicola had been shot in the face, damaging her jaw and tongue, and so had been unable to speak even though she was connected to 999. The bemused operator thought she might be dealing with a very small child and could be heard asking the caller, is mummy there? Shortly afterwards, a shot can be heard. This was Nicola being shot a fourth and final time. Footsteps can then be heard and single movements until the call finally cuts off. Detailed examination of the scene took place alongside post-mortems. Five bullets were recovered in total, with a further cartridge case being recovered from a fold in Nicola Fuller's dressing gown. Just outside the utility room, there was a spent cartridge on the floor from a .32 pistol. This type of calibre is rare, and the ammunition isn't readily available off the shelf. Analysis of that case showed not only was it an unusual calibre, it was also an unusual make, Hurtenberger, and it had been fired out of a Wolfer self-loading automatic pistol. It was thought that Harry Fuller had known his killer, as friends said he wouldn't have let anyone in the house that he didn't know. The killer probably left by the back door, and as the house was on a high street, at that time in the morning, police were convinced that whoever had done this must have been seen by passers-by. There was also CCTV available from the shops on the high street, albeit black and white and grainy. This was the early 90s, don't forget. Not that it's always much better today. Why is that? Why would you buy CCTV and not get good quality images? Anyway, I digress. The Lloyds Bank CCTV showed Harry Fuller going to the newsagents across the road at 8.34 in the morning in question, and the shopkeeper remembered him coming into the shop. This was one minute after the 999 call made by Nicola. Just what had happened on that day? Detectives began to look into the life of Harry Fuller to find out more about him, and the picture they discovered wasn't a particularly clear one. He was charming and charismatic, but he also had a reputation as a bit of a con man and as a Del Boy type character. In short, he was someone who often had a difficult relationship with the truth. Around this time, detectives had found a somewhat sinister answer phone message on Harry's phone. Hello Harry, it's Colin. I'm going to come over tomorrow morning and we're going to have a serious talk about what you did to me tonight because I'm pretty pissed off with you and you were going to pay for it. See you later. The caller certainly wasn't mincing his words and given the events that had happened at the cottage, detectives were certainly interested in this person. But was it the killer? Would someone intent on murder be stupid enough to leave a menacing message 
on an answer phone beforehand. It's often said that detectives don't believe in coincidence, so this seemed a genuine breakthrough, and Colin was quickly traced. He was an ex-business partner of Harry's, whom he had bought and sold used cars with. The message was regarding a falling out they had in Tunbridge Wells, but it was also quickly established that that phone call had been made before Christmas the previous year. So what, five months or so ago? And Colin was quickly ruled out as a suspect, and the case was no further forward. Indeed, due to Harry's lifestyle and business practices, this was only one of dozens of lines of inquiry that the police had to follow through Harry across many people over the years. The lead investigator, Chief Superintendent Graham Hill, said, Harry told many lies to many, many people, and most of those people related those stories to us. We were absolutely weighed down with a wealth of information, some of which we found out wasn't true, much of it we found out was an exaggeration if it had come from Harry's lips. For example, if he told someone he had £40,000 in his pocket, the probability is that he had £4,000 in his pocket. Inquiries with the locals in his neighbourhood pub said he often boasted about having over £300,000 in his attic. What is true is that shortly before his death, he came into a sum of £13,000 in cash and some of that money should have been in the house when he was murdered. Remember, back then, £13,000 was a much more significant sum of money, although of course it still is today. But was this the motive for murder? Detectives searched, but they could never find this cash in the house. Another strong lead came to light when it transpired that someone had sold Harry a BMW, but apparently the engine number didn't match the documents and it turned out to be stolen. Harry reported the matter to the police and the man was arrested. Had he gone after Harry in revenge? But once again, this inquiry came to nothing. Due to the lifestyle led by Harry and his way he did his business, there were loads of similar incidents, but each one, of course, had to be painstakingly investigated in case it was the one that led them to the murderer. Ten days into the investigation, the police forensics team were still searching inch by inch of the Fuller's cottage when they uncovered something unusual. Under the city was a small black box which turned out to be a machine that records phone calls. Why was it there? And why Harry had it wasn't really very clear, but detectives were certainly interested in what might be recorded on it. I suppose if you're being uber critical, questions could be asked about why it took 10 days to find such a large object, but let's skip over that one. Detectives discovered that the calls on the machine were from two days before the murder, and the evening directly before the two killings happened. Of all the calls discovered, police were able to eliminate all of them except for one. This was from a man who gave his name as Steve, and in an attempt to identify who this was, the tape was played to both Harry and Nicola's families. Nicola's sister said of this tape, I expected something that sounded very sinister, something very strange or very odd but it was just a very normal phone conversation, arranging to meet Harry in the morning, and it was only after a couple of days that I started to realise the implications of that. That 
was who was going to be at the cottage at eight o'clock on the Wednesday morning, which was the day that Nicola and Harry were killed. Detectives set about trying to work to identify the elusive Steve and initially worked out there were 85 people with the name Steve that had already come into the system during the investigation. Some were close associates, others had come into contact with Harry in some other context. It is, of course, a common name, and as each day went by, the number grew dramatically. However, finally, a small break for detectives. When inquiries with BT revealed that Harry had changed his number only a few weeks before the murder, which meant that not many people had his new phone number. Experts had managed to isolate Steve's voice on the recording and enhance it, but they concluded that voices sound different on the phone due to the telephone system, and this combined with the fact it had been taped on the recorder meant that unless you knew Steve very well, you'd be very unlikely to identify him with this evidence. Chief Superintendent Graham Hill had initially made the decision to keep the tape away from the public as he didn't want to alert the killer they were on his trail. However, as time went on, he eventually made the decision to seek the widest publicity that he could get, and that was, of course, the true crime enthusiast's favourite show, BBC's Crime Watch. That was in the good old days, before they completely messed about with the format. Why did they do that? The programme aired with Chief Superintendent Graham Hill making a personal appearance, requesting help from the case from the public, and of course the tape was played. 160 viewers called, with several viewers saying they recognised the voice. One of those was an anonymous caller, who said it belonged to a man called Steve Young, who lived in nearby Pembury. The next day, as detectives were preparing to go and pay a visit to Steve Young, a man of the same name turned up at Tunbridge Wells Police Station with a written statement. This statement said he was an acquaintance of Harry's, who had asked him to look out for any friends who were selling good quality prestige cars. He said he had a friend who was selling a nice Porsche, which was of interest to Harry, particularly as the price had been reduced a couple of times. It seemed a decent bargain. He'd arranged to visit Harry to discuss the sale and the voice on the tape recorder was his and he had been in Wadhurst on the morning of the murder. He said he had arrived about 8.20 in the morning and knocked on the front door but there was no reply. The desk officer advised that the matter would need to be passed to the incident room at nearby East Grinstead and Steve Young was invited to wait, which he did. Detectives knew that the Steve on the tape was either the murderer always at the scene at the time of the murder, so when they got the call that Steve Young was sitting in the police station, they made rapid progress to get there. Under questioning, Steve Young was asked why he hadn't come forward before and why he waited for the tape to be made public. He was very calm and he simply replied that he hadn't seen or heard anything that would have been of any help to the police. His assured manner suggested to the interviewing detective that Young had probably been under investigation before. But a subsequent check showed he had no criminal record and had never even been interviewed by the police previously. Police found out that Young owned a distinctive white Golf GTI that had been extensively modified. He had access to other vehicles too, but Young said that this was the car 
he had taken when he'd gone to the Fuller's cottage that day. He also admitted that he was a registered shotgun and firearms owner. He had a shotgun and four pistols. Indeed, he was the treasurer of a local gun club. Stephen Young at this stage was arrested and a search team was dispatched to his home. Young admitted that his brokerage business had been struggling financially. He also told how he fabricated his own bullets using a press. A process whereby you buy the case, the bullet head, the gunpowder and the primer separately and make them yourself. For an owner of a firearm certificate it's perfectly legal, it saves money and it's a relatively simple process. But it takes skill and experience to do it proficiently. To detectives this was significant. A ballistics expert examined the press and said it wasn't very good quality, nor were the cartridges that Young had produced. However, the markings on the empty cases left at the crime scene matched those of the ones made by the press. This surely meant that Young was the man they'd been looking for. Young's golf was recovered from a garage in Norwich, where he was having further modifications carried out on it, and checks on the car phone, remember those, showed that a call was made to the Fuller's number at 8.10am on the Wednesday morning. Meanwhile, police revisited Lloyd's Bank on the High Street and reviewed their CCTV again. During his interview, Young said he'd arrived at the Fuller's address about 8.20, leaving at about 8.40. But there was no sign of the car on the CCTV at those times. However, the car, which was easily identified due to non-standard alloy wheels and body kit, was seen driving past the cottage at 8.03, which clearly placed him at the scene of the crime. For detectives, their hard work was paying off and things seemed to be falling into place. For Stephen Young, his defence was starting to unravel. His office was searched and a huge amount of property and paperwork was taken away. Amongst this, the police found a bank paying in slip to the tune of £6,000. This had been paid in the day after the murders, almost all in £20 notes. And this was significant, as Harry had been given that £13,000 we mentioned earlier in £20 notes just before his death. He'd actually been given it by a trusting person to invest in his company. It was an investment opportunity, they thought. A senior fraud squad officer was drafted in to decipher the accounts of Stephen Young's brokerage company and he described the financial state of the business as desperate. Young had been using his client's premium payments to pay his own bills, which meant the underwriter wasn't being paid. Things had come to a head with the insurance company giving Young an ultimatum, which he had to pay what he owed or they would pull their products. This would mean his brokerage would be terminated and the business would fail. It was very clear that he was under extreme pressure to find a sizable amount of money and quickly. Immediately prior to the murder, his bank accounts did not hold anywhere near enough money to pay the outstanding debts off. He'd made out a forward dated cheque, knowing that he had time to raise the money or the cheque would bounce and the insurance company would terminate his brokerage. With this evidence in hand, detectives interviewed Young again. With things already stacked up against him, would this force a confession? But no, 
Young wasn't even flustered. He simply said it was cash he'd been saving at home for a rainy day, and although he didn't want to use it, he knew he had to clear the debt so he'd put his savings to good use. However, all the paperwork from his financial affairs and conversations with his friends spoke of a man who was desperate to raise money, not somebody who actually had the means at home to extricate himself from the financial mire that he found himself in. The fraud squad, amongst the paperwork, even found a list of people in the village that Young had asked to borrow money from, annotated with their reply, which in all cases was declined. Those who knew him knew he was a very poor risk. With two young boys, Young gave the impression of being a family man. Indeed, the family all took part in a local amateur dramatic society together. So when searching the children's bedroom, they were staggered to find a 9mm automatic pistol hidden under the bed. Further inspection, shockingly, showed the pistol was loaded. But again, when questioned, Young kept his composure and said he believed it was a suitable place to store the weapon. He said he couldn't keep it in his gun cabinet as it wasn't a legally held weapon, but when pressed as to why it was loaded, he calmly responded, I can't answer that question. The way he behaved when interviewed led detectives to nickname him the Iceman, as nothing seemed to faze him. He gave the impression that all couples have a loaded pistol under their children's beds. It's a perfectly normal thing to have. Detectives brought up the subject of the .32 automatic used in the murder. He said he didn't possess this, but he might have made some ammunition up for a colleague at the gun club at some point. When it was pointed out that some had been recovered from his property, he simply said it was the remnants from that batch. Interestingly, although he was a licensed shotgun owner, he'd shortened the barrels of the gun by sawing them off, making it illegal. He also had a strange fancy dress rubber mask. Look, what you do in your spare time with consenting adults is up to you, right? But these aren't what you would expect to be the normal working tools of an insurance broker. Although the gun was never recovered, documents from a gun dealer in Derbyshire found in Young's house a Chinese copy of a Walther PPK in 1988. Then a single nickel jacketed Hurtenberger bullet found in his office matched perfectly with the cartridges used to kill the Fullers. This was enough for detectives and Stephen Young was charged with double murder. On the 23rd of March 1994, Stephen Young shook his head as the jury returned guilty verdicts at the end of a three-and-a-half-week trial at Hove Crown Court. The decision was greeted with cheers from the public gallery where Nicola's family had sat throughout the trial. However, the story wasn't quite over. There was another twist to come. The Court of Appeal decided that the convicted double killer should face a new trial due to the actions of some members of the jury. It seemed that during the trial, the jurors were sent away to a hotel overnight the old ship in Brighton, as they couldn't decide their verdict. After a number of drinks, they then held, wait for it, an Ouija board seance in an attempt to talk to the spirit of Harry Fuller and ask him if Stephen Young was the killer. 
I suspect the only spirits that made an appearance that night was Johnny Walker and Captain Morgan. But this ridiculous behaviour resulted in a retrial at great cost to us taxpayers. Stephen Young was found guilty once again following a five-week hearing in December 1994. He was sentenced to life in prison and told he would have to serve at least 20 years before he would be considered for parole. The judge told him, The jury has convicted you of terrible and horrible offences. Two human beings were shot down. The circumstances relating to the deaths are totally horrific. The precise circumstances relating to the death of Nicola will remain in everyone's mind for years to come. Responding to the Court of Appeals decision, Nicola Fuller's dad said that the Ouija jurors made a complete joke of our daughter's death. The verdict doesn't change things for us at all. We can't bring Nicky back, but it does take one evil person off the streets. And the lead detective, Chief Superintendent Graham Hill, said, Outwardly, Stephen Young was a very responsible family man who was well liked by his clients and people in Pembury. There was a totally different side to him, and it's the other side that very few people knew about. These were cold, callous and calculated murders, and all the evidence is that they were pre-planned. So what did you make of what we've heard today? I think it's quite a remarkable story. And Stephen Young would likely have escaped detection, but for two details that he was unable to foresee. One was the tape recording of the conversation he had with Harry Fuller on the night before the killings, in which they'd agreed to meet at the cottage the next morning. The second was that he was unaware that the Lloyds Bank security system had filmed his car entering and leaving Wadhurst with an hour's interval in between. Both were amateur mistakes, right? With hindsight, I suppose this was 1993. There is one more minor twist. Six months after the trial, Nicola's mum and dad, Michael and Barbara Johnson, were enjoying a quiet Sunday evening watching Songs of Praise. It was a Christmas edition, in this case coming from Wormwood Scrubs Prison in London. As the camera panned across the prison chapel, a group of cons are shown singing their hearts out. And who stood at the front smiling and laughing, loving every second of it? Yep, you've got it. Stephen Young. Michael was furious, understandably, and complained to both the BBC and the governor of the Scrubs. So what became of Stephen Young? He was apparently a model prisoner when he was on remand. Well, so on that calm. He was always going to be, wasn't he? A man as cold and calculating as Young was hardly likely to smash up his cell or mount a rooftop protest. Given his tariff of 20 years, it's possible he was released about eight years ago. I can't find anything regarding his release or his subsequent life afterwards. But there is an article making reference to him appealing his sentence 19 years after his conviction. So in 2013, he was still denying his guilt. If this is still the case, how can he prove to a parole board that he's addressed his offending behaviour, thus lowering his risk? if he's so adamant he didn't carry out the offence. But who knows, maybe he's out, hopefully he isn't. As for the Johnson family, both Michael and Barbara 
suffered serious medical issues in the years after the murders, which they believe was brought on by the stress of what had happened to their daughter Nicola. The wider family, like Michael and Barbara, are the often forgotten victims of serious crime, and along with Nicola and Harry, we remember them today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please just head over to the Facebook group where you'll be very, very welcome. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. Bonus episodes, competitions, behind the scenes stuff, 10% discount in December and an annual subscription means you'll get a free signed copy of my book about Scottish serial killer Angus Sinclair. Just go to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. So another big thank you to Matt Matrix for bringing us this story. And I just want to take this time again to wish you all a very, very happy Christmas. But don't forget, I'll be back here next week on Tuesday. So until that time, until we speak again, despite despite all the others, stay classy and enjoy the buble. Cheerio for now.